0: i didn't care more than words can say if i didn't care would i feel this way if this isn't long And what makes my head go round and round While my heart stands still If I didn't care Would it be the same? Hello everybody, this is Oscar Dahl, I'm here with Matthew Knutson And this is We Like Movies, AFI Top 100 Countdown, number 72 the Shawshank Redemption, a tale of incarceration based on the Stephen King novella, directed by Frank Darabont, starring Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman's silky smooth voice. <laughs> this is one of the most watched movies of the 1990s, wouldn't you say, given its TNT cable renaissance? Maybe not even a renaissance, it seemed like it came onto cable basically starting in the late 90s as it been airing Continuously ever since.
1: Yeah, the story that I read was that because of how disappointing the box office was on this movie, TNT was able to get it for really cheaply. Because apparently, there's a sliding scale. Forrest Gump, just to pick a 1994 movie, is obviously this huge box office success. The cable companies gauge how much more popular it's going to be as a result. So the studios are going to charge them more for it. As a result, something like Shotshake Redemption, which was kind of considered to be a little bit of a flop. Uh, they ended up getting it for really cheaply, and that's how people kind of discovered it because they were able to air it so many times. So, this is really a vestige of the 90s that, uh, you know, your younger millennials probably have very little reference for because we just don't watch movies on cable nowadays the way we used to in the 90s or even the early 2000s. But there was a time when. TNT or TBS or USA or even FX to a somewhat lesser degree spike. Cable channels would just run the shit over and over and over and over. And, you know, your, your James Bond film festival would run for a week during the holidays or whatever. And you can't understate how important cable was for introducing those of us of a certain age to movies that we, you know, would have been too young to see in the theater and might have even been too young to watch on VHS, but you could watch the edited version on TNT, right?
0: I, I watched it over and over again. And, and, and I, I, I seem to remember we had it on DVD, and it was one of the movies I watched over and over again when I was a teenager in and in a budding cinephile, right? When we used to make lists, I, I would always put Shawshank at the top. I thought it was a cool thing that I thought Shawshank was great. It's pretty pretty basic now but at the time now, it would have been pretty provocative yeah I, I suppose i mean not really i mean it was a best picture nominee and was a was a heralded film right from the beginning but it felt like the kind of movie to my teenage mind that you know someone who's uh, above it all and someone with with great rich tastes should put at the top of their list right?
1: you wanted this movie to represent you
0: and you know that worked that worked fine for a while uh <laughs> and i I think I overdid it. And, you know, we were talking beforehand, but I, you know, probably watched the movie 10, 12, 15 times back in those days. But I don't think I'd seen this movie in in at least a decade before watching it for this list. That made me really excited to sit down and give it a full viewing. I mean, obviously, snippets at like my parents' house went and you know, flipped through it on TNT every now and then, but, but never for a full, uh, singular rewatch.
1: Well, I can say with quite a bit of confidence that the first time I saw this film was a combination of probably a dozen different pieces, <laughs> yeah. meaning that I, I probably constructed my first actual viewing of the movie based on happening upon moments in it on TNT at friends' houses on a borrowed VHS. I mean, I really piecemealed this thing together one scene at a time before I finally sat down and watched it all the way through, which probably wasn't until maybe close to college. I mean probably late high school at the earliest. It was not an important film for me until it was, if that makes sense. Like sure, there was a sure. point where like I finally sat down and watched the cause I was intrigued by it for sure, but there was a point where I finally like, sat down and watched the whole thing all the way through and finally got it and was like, ah, this is what everybody's talking about. I remember hearing the controversy about the title in 1994 when it came out long years before i would actually see the movie and i thought to myself that's a really cool title what are people talking about why are people so you know why are people so um, adverse to this title i think i think it's awesome i think it's evocative and weird and unexpected and you know, there's there's kind of like a girth to it, almost like there's yeah, just something. Yeah, yeah. it's just it's like uh, it's meaty. For it's, sure. it's a meaty title. Yes, it's a juicy <laughs> title, for lack of a more eloquent term. And I remember thinking to myself like, oh, that's a strong title. But for some reason, and Morgan Freeman seems to corroborate this, people were adverse to it. And I've never I've never understood that. Why they think it's a mouthful. They don't like the word Shawshank. Now the word Shawshank tends to be so evocative. To to mm-hmm. so many people, what what is it about this title that you think people bristled at in 1994?
0: Uh, maybe just a little esoteric, maybe just sort of weird, and uh, doesn't make any. I don't know for, for someone coming into the film without knowing anything about it, it doesn't really give you a good. Um, <laughs> Uh, sense of what the movie's going to be about or what it is or 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 maybe people thought it was misleading.
1: I mean the movie takes place in Shawshank prison and there's a pretty there's a couple of pretty important redemptions by the end of it so I find it to be yeah. relatively accurate myself but
0: I mean a title doesn't have to <laughs> explain what the movie is really. So I I, I never understood it. I mean it, it's a shortened title from uh, I believe it's Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is the name of the Short story. novella, yeah. right? The yeah. I think it's a novella, not necessarily a short story. I think it's like an 80-page okay. thing by Stephen King. I haven't read it. I have been reading a lot of Stephen King lately. Interesting. Been kind of on a Stephen King kick. It it does feel very true to the way he writes in terms of characters especially and, and little side plots and how, how, how he goes about characterizing people. Um, a lot of show and not tell. Okay. Uh, which which I think is is the right choice, and you know it's it's clear that Frank Darabont is a huge Stephen King guy. Obviously, you know he did two Stephen King jail movies in a row, right? And the Mist um, as well, right? Yeah, and the Mist. So he he's on the same page, and he wants to sort of show off the most Stephen Kingy attributes in in his adaptations. For me, they are. Probably the best Stephen King adaptations. I know a lot of people love Misery or, or Carrier or some of his earlier works. Stand War by stuff, Me. Or Shining, right? But The Shining is much more of a Kubrick movie than it is a, a, a Stephen King adaptation. Even King has said so himself. So, yeah. I, I, I like that. Did this movie sort of live up to what you thought it was going to be rewatching it in your mid 30s?
1: Yeah. I mean, just like you, I hadn't seen it in many, many years. Probably maybe as many as as 10 years for, and it wasn't like I was avoiding it. It just wasn't something that ever really like popped up. Ironically, considering how much it popped up during my adolescence, I was very excited to revisit it, especially because it wasn't on the original AFI list it's uh it's an addition to the to the 10-year anniversary if i'm being totally honest i was th- definitely thinking to myself all right this will be this will be fun i'm sure it'll be enjoyable but there's no way this movie lives up to its now legendary status i mean people a lot of people consider this one of the greatest if not the greatest movie of all time like you said this is one of a lot of people's favorite film famously or infamously been number one on the imdb uh list for a decade now yeah above you know above things like the godfather no so the reputation is crazy and sort of of unprecedented and I was like there's no way this this lives up I mean I'm, I'm sure it'll be a fun watch but it's not gonna blow my hair back I mean like you said you look back on your on your teenage self thinking that this was the greatest film ever and now you're kind of you scoff at that you're 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 making fun of your younger self for that kind of thing right so as a result of all that context and history I was just like all right Shawshank impressed me, right? Arms (laughs) folded. And I sat here and watched it on my laptop the other day, which is obviously not the ideal way to watch something shot by the great Roger Deakins. Uh, But damned if I just didn't sit here in my chair staring at my laptop with my chin on my fist for two and a half hours. And by the end of the thing, um, I'd be a liar if I said that the tears weren't streaming, man. This is an unbelievably effective movie that is timeless and that uh, really, really knows how to push the buttons in a very traditionally cinematic, but still, but no less effective way. I mean, this is an old school Tearjerker, Capra-esque crowd pleaser. They don't make them like this anymore.
0: My cynical self was much in the same, uh, you know, headspace as you. Yeah, the result was was similar. I was sort of I was awed anew by this movie. The way it's paced, the way its characters work, just efficient and seamless passage of time. It's really hard to do that without sort of hard cuts and hard, like, uh, ten years later title cards type type things. But goddamn if Darabont doesn't figure out a way to sort of move the story along years at a time yeah. without it seeming forced or seeming jarring in any way. You know, some call it a crutch, but it really works for this movie. The voiceover by our second lead is is really effective in a number of ways. Narratively, it really helps that we don't know exactly what's going on in our in our lead character Andy Dufresne's head the whole time, which which is needed yeah. for some of the surprising elements and, and for some of just the, you know, the the deeks I guess in the movie because obviously he has he has some plans and he's 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 got some secret things up his sleeves and fuck man it helps with with the mystery of our main character and and Tim Robbins he plays this character so freaking low key yeah. throughout this movie that you really do need the sort of uh, flavor of 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 Morgan Freeman's voiceover throughout. I, I thought going in there like, oh, it's gonna be this this crutch, it's gonna be a very cliche voiceover, but
1: the mystique of the Morgan Freeman voiceover has become a, a joke now at this point. Yes. But this is this is what established it, right? I mean I'm not sure if this is the first movie he ever did I don't think this is the first movie he ever did voiceover in, but like this is this is the one. This is the one that led to, you know, March of the Penguins, for example, right? <laughs> yeah, War I mean, of the Worlds, even. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is there is something ethereal about his his approach to this. And on paper, we all know, and anybody who's taken a screenwriting course takes it for granted, that voiceover is a crutch, and you ch- want to try and avoid it if you can. And, you know, Robert McKee famously, God help you if you use voiceover, my friend. But this movie does not work without it, and a lot of the reason that it works is obviously based on Morgan Freeman's ability in this arena. But I think it's also very necessary because, like you said, you basically have two leads, and the enigmaticness of one of them is narratively important mm-hmm. so you got the you got co-leads which is a, a very tough thing to pull off and one of them has to be kind of mysterious and off in his own world but then the other so then the other one has to carry the weight taking you through this you know whatever it is 30 odd years 20 years whatever it ends up being uh, you know offering context for this environment talking about how he's a man who knows how to get things i mean it, you, you can't extract Freeman's VO from this movie and expect it to work the same way, right? You need to hear about how the night that he thought Andy Dufresne was going to kill himself was the longest night of his life, right?
0: It just works with the way these two are sort of foils for each other too, right? Like Morgan Freeman has settled into his life. His, his life is repetitive. He knows what's happening every day. He knows his place. He, he knows exactly who he is and, and what he means to the prison community. We need Andy Dufresne to, to, like I said, have that sort of enigmaticness, and also we need him to continually surprise us. And if his was the voiceover, that wouldn't be the case. And we don't need Morgan Freeman's character to surprise us, but we need to have his take on what's going on with his, with his friend Andy and, and have sort of that secrecy of, of, of Andy Dufresne's inner life, you know, be a surprise to, to the audience. Right. Um, And there are a number of times where that, that, that comes into play, you know, whether it's the eventual escape or the opera scene or or whatever, this movie just deals so delicately and, and deftly with their relationship. You know, looking back, I'm so amazed at how, how well they parcel out just the narrative in this movie, for instance, just the opening, the crime and Andy going to prison is dealt with so economically yeah. and perfectly good word for um, it. he's he's in prison by the time the title cards are uh, uh, you know the credits are are done right he, he he gets there within i don't know 8 minutes maybe sure if that and it te- it tells you everything you need to know. Just the the way the two characters are connected at the beginning, which can feel forced in a lot of movies. The fact that uh, the whole the whole betting thing, yeah, that Red, red bets on Andy. Um, that's just such an easy, beautiful way of connecting those two characters immediately. You didn't have to have a mute cute or anything, right?
1: They actually do have kind of a meat cute, but it's earned, you know, like yes. when, when they finally get around to it, it's earned. And the fact that he bets against him, that he bet that he thinks that he's, you know, walking around with a silver spoon up his ass and look at that tall drink of water over there. Like the fact that he's not a fan basically at yeah. first and that he undervalued, you know, he he underestimates him is so significant. There, that's a, That's a great screenwriting thing, too, to be able to subvert that. You know, yeah. to start out at cross purposes and then to bring these two together in that eventual meet-cute is so is so smart and so much more yeah. effective than just if they're friends right off the bat, right?
0: And it sets up the recurring theme of Andy continually surprisingly.
1: Really. Yeah, yep, 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 absolutely.
0: It's so smooth, just yeah. <laughs> everything about his character and, and the building of him. Uh, you know, sort of reforming and redeeming a lot of parts of of the jail and himself and the people around him. All these characters are so well drawn. You know, once you get to sort of the more dramatic moments near the end of the movie, it's it's earned. And yeah, like you said, this it's it's a it's a it's a tearjerker, man. Holy shit!
1: Watching it the other day, I was thinking to myself, and it might have been a hyperbolic knee jerk thing, but I still might stand by this. Is this one of the all time great third acts in the history of film? Basically, from from the moment the story you know from the storm when Morgan Freeman says that's that was the longest night of my life, or let's even let's even go back further. Let's start it from the conversation they have on the wall where he tells him about the lava rock and no you know the place where no earthly rock should should ever be found. Like when he basically tells him where he's gonna hide the box. And Morgan Freeman starts to worry that he's he's snapped. That might that might be the beginning of the third act. And because theoretically the low point would be Andy in solitary confinement, right? And they yeah. always say, you know, low point is, is the end of the second act. So right after that is the beginning of the third act where they talk along the wall. And then you go through to them talking about giving him the, the piece of rope. And then the storm, and then Kel uh, reveals her secret, and yeah. then they replay Andy's escape, which is obviously a transcendent moment with that iconic shot of him in the rain. And then the warden getting what's coming to him, and then uh, you know Red getting out and finding the box, going to Zlataneeo. I- I'd put this third act up against pretty much any you know any great you know final thirty minutes of any classic film. It, yeah. it doesn't get much better than this.
0: The one thing that stuck out at me I was like you know the the whole suicide fake out is maybe a tad bit overwrought. I want to I want like a, I want my mind erased and be able to see this movie free of of knowing anything about it because I, I wonder how audiences reacted to the escape not knowing that it would happen maybe they assume that he was going to escape but they don't you know they don't really lead any clues about him planning an escape throughout the movie which is really effective once you see how subtle that that stuff is at the beginning i mean there's the rock hammer but then that's the last thing they say about it besides- they
1: subvert it they subvert it immediately right yeah like i i managed i managed i, manage, I uh, imagine you'd want to tunnel into the wall with it and then Andy starts laughing and he says, y- You'll know once you see the hammer. And then you're right. They never talk about it again. At one point, you see him starting to scratch his name into the wall. Yeah. And then you don't see what becomes of that until the flashbacks. I'm writing an essay right now about sort of like narrative intentionality and the use of fractured temporality in narrative films, specifically those of Christopher Nolan. I was thinking about that watching this the other day and thinking to myself, how smart Darabont's sort of trajectory is here in terms of how he decides to parse that information and the way he decides to reveal. The reveal of Andy's tunnel doesn't work unless you are kind of with, quote-unquote, with Red through the whole movie, right? And no, with yeah. him and with his voiceover and stuff. So the way that he reveals it, he is such a goddamn home run. Throwing the rock through the Raquel poster and so not good. see not seeing where the rock goes, but hearing it bounce down that tunnel, right? And then him putting his finger through the poster and then the camera pulls back. I mean, it's 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 perfect like I there's not a single thing I would change about a change about it the decision to deliver the information about the escape in that sort of climactic way although I, I guess I should give I should give Stephen King a little bit more
0: credit I, I don't know if this short story is told from red's point of view or, or how go I mean Stephen King really does get into each of his characters he really unpacks like the character's psyches. So I wonder how much of mystery Andy's inner world is in the novella. But I, yeah, I would imagine that the structure is probably vastly different. I mean, it had it would have to be going, you know, adapting an eighty-page novella short story into a two and a half-hour movie. You'd think, right?
1: The, yes, exactly. And but the the little research that I did do, I'm pretty darn sure the novella is from Rhett's point of view. So it would stand to reason that some of this information was delivered in this manner. But it's just it's so smart and it's so effective and it got me thinking about the famous Jean Luc Godard quote. You know, every movie has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, but not necessarily in that order. Yeah. You know, information should be doled out for its optimal dramatic potency. Yeah. Not for chronology's sake. So the w- the way this is done is is pretty much perfect. I wouldn't change a single thing about it. And it is uh, it's fucking rousing. I mean, it is rough to watch him crawl through that sewer pipe, not just because it's a sewer pipe, but because I'm also I kind of suffer from claustrophobia. <laughs> yeah. And all I can think while he's while he's crawling through that pipe is, "Oh my god, what if he gets to the end of the pipe and there's like a grate or something? Like he how, doesn't, how does know? he know he how does he know that it's an open pipe at the end, right? Yeah. But that's just uh, that's where my mind goes. So when he finally gets to the end of the pipe and it's open, I mean I know it's gonna happen, but I still get so relieved every time <laughs> <laughs> that when he finally gets out and, and spreads his arm you know, very messianically in the rain. The relief for me is that there was no great at the end of that pipe more than anything else. So he's not stuck in there forever.
0: The restraint to not to show only as much as as they need to, right? Like the you know, I was remembering Brooks's side plot, right? And and, and thinking, God, that's so heartbreaking. Like I don't want to watch that part of the movie. And I even sort of before it happened was like, oh, is this side plot really necessary? Blah, blah blah. But then I forgot how quickly and economically again that whole thing is done like that brooks's little scene out after parole is finished within like five minutes sure it's so quick but so affecting and then we get to the end and and just the restraint to not show andy on the lamb arrive in Ziwataneo, just keeping all that a mystery you know you said how amazing this third act is one of the greatest third acts you know we, we can think of and that's without our main character saying more than a handful of lines like you know he has that scene telling him about the rock and quartz or whatever and then he, I, I think he says a few lines at the bank but besides that he's silent and and in and, and the final shot not having them say anything to each other just you know, the walk up and the, and the you know, the pull back into that helicopter shot. It really hits you and and they don't, we don't need a little scene of them talking or saying hello or whatever. We can just imagine, imagine their future and the rest of their lives.
1: He used the term main character and and I called them dual protagonists or something at the beginning of this conversation. I think I'm going to amend that a little bit. I, I do think that that Morgan Freeman is is the main character of this movie not necessarily just because he does the voiceover but because after that prologue where Andy ends up in prison we don't experience anything from Andy that isn't filtered through Red's perspective right with very yeah. few exceptions we're almost always seeing Andy through Red's eyes or hearing about him through Red's VO even when he's getting attacked and raped you're hearing about that you're hearing about that recollected by red for the most part
0: yeah i i I would say that this movie is red telling andy's story right so everything red does is basically about Andy, uh, Andy, or has something to do with Andy, or is uh, you know in, in conflict with Andy, or whatever. And everything Andy does is not necessarily have to do with Red. So whether that makes one or the other the main character, I don't really care. Everything Red, I mean, does Red do anything that's outside of Andy's influence in this movie? I, I guess his his journey of uh, his sort of canned parole responses, and then Andy sort of inspiring him to to not give a shit in his final parole response that works his own journey. But besides that, it's it, it's all about Andy, right?
1: Well, what I'm basing this this idea that this is Red's movie or that Red is the, quote-unquote, main character, what I'm basing that on is the fact that the film ends with his, quote-unquote, journey, you know, physically and spiritually or whatever. Like, him getting out of prison him going to find the box, sitting under the tree, saying, get you know, get busy living or get busy dying, getting on the bus, talking about going to see his friend, arriving in Ziwataneo. I mean, we're with him that whole time to the point where I really feel like his decision to embrace hope, finally. Sure. That is the emotional crux of the movie, mm-hmm. I think. Like, Andy inspires Red to change his outlook on life and on hope. Yeah. One can, one can make the argument that Red is the one who has the arc. Mm-hmm. Whereas Andy is just this stoic messianic figure throughout the entire thing who never loses hope, who never stops pushing back, who probably always has this plan to you know get out by any means necessary. Yeah. Because some birds just aren't meant to be caged, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, let me ask you this. Are there any sour notes in this movie for you at all? Are there any little side plots, any sidebars, anything that, that you feel Maybe could have been left out because it is a fairly long movie.
1: Honestly, not really, and you know I I don't want to I don't want to use the word perfect when it comes to this movie, but it is pretty darn unimpeachable. There isn't really much fat on this thing. I've never really read any Stephen King. I find his stuff to be a little dark for my tastes. And honestly, Darabont is a little dark for my tastes. I mean, the Green Mile is much darker than this movie. And there's parts of that that I have a hard time watching. The Mist is way, is way too heavy for me. I'll probably never watch that movie again. Yeah, I mean, Darabont's kind of like, he's kind of a dark guy. He comes from horror, right? He comes from yeah. the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Stephen King's stuff is can be a little twisted. And there are parts of this movie, I mean, it's set in a fucking prison. Of course, it's going to get dark, but like, it's not that there's stuff in the movie I would get rid of or that I don't think deserves to be there or isn't effective. It's more like there's stuff in this movie that's kind of difficult for me to watch. Yeah. Like a lot of the assaults, e- you know, even like quote-unquote bad guys getting assaulted. Like yeah. Boggs, you know, Boggs the rapist when Clancy Brown, you know, beats the shit out of him. Like that scene is even hard for me to watch just because they're like beating him with impunity. I mean, he's a bad guy. He deserves to be punished. He's been assaulting our main character, but that's that's still tough for me to watch. Yeah, And then, like I said, they're crawling through the sewer pipe and... Uh, there's just rough there's rough things in this movie but it's necessary i mean he needs he needs to be escaping from hell i mean shawshank has to be a place that you would want to escape from because so much of it is just like oh they're playing checkers they're hanging out they're smoking cigarettes seems like they can get pretty much anything they want here they can get a bottle of booze if they need it this doesn't seem so bad at all no it's got to be solitary needs to be shitty threat of rape needs to be shitty You, you need to want to get out of this place for sure so i get that
0: Yeah, and let's give it up to Bob Gunton and Clancy Brown for a couple of really, really incredible villains. In this yeah. movie uh, that play off each other well and, and sort of <laughs> give each other what they need. Bob Gunton, especially, that's like a, they're not just mustache twirling uh, evil for the sake of being evil. I mean, they have they're, they're pretty complex characters and they a big part of this movie is, is Andy finding ways to get in with them and get in their good graces while knowing that or, or, or just or becoming essential to them in a way that uh, he, he's seen what they can do. To people, you know, especially Boggs or the crying fat guy at the very beginning of the movie who they just straight up. I mean, what a good way to set up the sort of danger of this world, which if you fuck around, you might might just end up getting killed and there's no repercussions for it.
1: No, I mean, it's it's survival tactics on Andy's part throughout the entire thing. Right. Yeah. Like all this stuff is survival tactics and also ways to keep himself sane. These guys are incredible villains. Bob Gutton is incredibly complex and interesting and not two dimensional i mean he 's got he 's got a lot going on he 's a fully fleshed character, and those yeah the interactions between him and Andy I think are fascinating and him going out and you know getting bribes from the local you know construction workers or whatever <laughs> yeah. i mean that 's just just great interesting subplots that end up paying off when Andy finally can go and collect on that laundered money. Mm-hmm. I mean the whole money laundering thing would seem so superfluous on paper. Be like, you know, we got a lot going on. We're we really going to go down this money laundering road, but then it completely pays off when you need it to. Yes,
0: yeah, so so. the the crux of his escape plan, basically. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Matt, what is your favorite scene in the movie? There's a lot of scenes to choose from.
1: It, it's such so, it'd be so boring and cliche to say that it's you know Andy escaping into the river or Red and Andy reuniting on the beach at the end, right? But how are you going to argue with that? I mean, this helicopter shot with this soaring Thomas, we haven't even mentioned Thomas Newman yet. Thomas Newman's score is so amazing. And he was a guy who wasn't really a household name until about five years later when he did American Beauty, which Mm -hmm. I feel like is kind of like, it's such an esoteric score that it kind of like really brought him to people's attention. But it's clear here, five years before that, he's doing incredible work. Epic, soaring piece of music. I mean, it's been used in, um, you know, umpteen movie trailers since the release of The Shawshank Redemption. And it truly flies in every sense of the word. Just what that does to your heart in that final moment when they reunite on the beach. Uh, it's, just, it's just one of the all-time great ending sequences. It's just one of the all-time great final shots. And I yeah. think it's my favorite scene in the movie. Sorry.
0: It's uh it's hard to argue with that. I mean, I, I think the one other contender uh, is the opera scene. Yeah. You know, it comes at a really cool point in the movie. You know, uh, Andy has made himself essential enough where he knows he can act up without sort of fatal <laughs> repercussions. Um, and so he, he just has enough rope to hang himself with a little bit. but. <laughs> He, uh, he sort of needs it it's a really lovely midpoint to the film but if I had to choose one I yeah I'm choosing the, f- the final shots
1: the um the opera scene is is the Oscar scene I don't know why I remember this but watching the Oscars in 1994 well early 1995 I guess when they back when they used to do little snippets of all the individual best picture nominees back when there was only five yeah that's the scene they showed for the Shawshank Redemption, that Oscar sequence and Morgan Freeman's incredible monologue. Morgan Freeman nominated for Best Actor. Uh, nothing for Tim Robbins here, interestingly enough.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. It's a, it's a, it's
1: it's a, a showier role.
0: It's a way showier role, and Tim Robbins plays it very close to the vest throughout the entire movie. The restraint he shows is, is, is important and uh, admirable in its own way. So is this uh, Tim Robbins' best film?
1: I was thinking about that, and I was—I was, I was also—I don't think this is Morgan Freeman's best film. I might point to *Unforgiven*. I was thinking, is this Morgan Freeman's best performance? Um, but let's get your first question first. Is this Tim Robbins' best movie? I just rewatched *The Player* the other day, which really, really holds up well. Which he's actually pretty <laughs> spectacular. And it wasn't a movie I was all that excited to revisit. And then I was fucking riveted for the entire thing. I don't know. Tim Robbins had a really interesting career. He won his Oscar for *Mystic River*, obviously, which seems to be a movie that. That hasn't aged very well. People don't seem to have as much esteem for that movie these days or for that performance for that matter. I don't know. I'd have to give that some thought. But this is certainly, it's a very brave performance in a lot of ways because of the amount of restraint and because of the choices he's making. And the fact that he obviously is willing to sort of like concede the showier stuff to Morgan Freeman. So is this Morgan Freeman's best performance is the next question. Yeah, I think it might be. One is Oscar for Million Dollar Baby, which is a movie that I was never all that crazy about. He's very good in it i prefer this or unforgiven or even glory for that matter this is his most iconic role right at least whatever that means yeah i
0: think it's the, it's the role that sort of cemented his place in hollywood it, it really put his career on a uh, on the path that it you know it's been going for the last twenty twenty 20 some odd years
1: Morgan Freeman was 57 when they made this movie. Tim Robbins was 36. Listen to this Listen to this crazy 10-year run that uh, Morgan Freeman had, starting in 1989 with, I mean, you can even go back a little further, Lean on Me, Clean and Sober in 1988. Driving Miss Daisy, 1989. Then you do Glory, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Unforgiven, then Shawshank, Back to Back. Outbreak, 7. Uh, then he gets into this Alex Cross stuff with Kiss the Girls, and then uh, Amistad in 1997. So I guess it's actually more like a nine-year run. Well, then Nurse Betty in 2000, he's excellent, Nurse Betty. That's an underrated movie. But <laughs> um, but that's pretty, pretty crazy for a man in his 50s to all of a sudden catch fire like that as a legitimate movie star. One of the biggest movie stars of the 90s I would say. Yeah,
0: for sure. You know.
1: Still I mean still a movie star for sure, but what, a, what an incredible run he had there. I guess it starts with 80s. Driving Miss Daisy, right? Yeah, Driving Miss Daisy in 89 is where I would where I would start it. Seeing Morgan Freeman listening to his voice, just seeing the just the the naturalism mm-hmm. in his approach uh, just got me thinking that there's just nobody. There's just nobody else like him. There's nobody who can do what he does. And he just makes it look so goddamn easy. Like you never see any work happening I don't know. It's just there's, there's a naturalism to it. Yeah, there's just something kind of like second nature to his approach, and I just buy every single thing that comes out of his mouth.
0: One more small choice that Darabont makes in this movie that I think is is important, but it could be overlooked is you know this movie takes place over over twenty some odd years, I, I believe, right, like forty nine to sixty. 667 something like that
1: you know that I would have thought it would take a man 100 years to tunnel with that rock hammered Andy did it in just under 20 yeah something like that sure I think he's in prison for 19 years
0: but they, they they opt not to like do any weird makeup or do any sort of aging stuff to the characters and they're both in that you know in that middle age area where it's it's not entirely necessary but I'm glad they decided not to I think they put a little gray in Andy's hair. I think that's, like, basically the only thing that they do to sort of show the passage of time with the characters. And it, and it works works quite well.
1: I agree. How, how old do you think Andy's supposed to be when he first—when he goes to prison? Because at one point, Morgan Freeman says he was the—he uh, was a big-deal bank manager, not bad for such a young man or something like that. you think he's in his, like, early—
0: I'm going to say he goes from, like, 30 to 49 or something.
1: Okay. That sounds right. you uh, you mentioned the runner, you mentioned the probation probation hearing runner throughout the film. It's one of my favorite aspects of this movie. It's something I, I return to all the time in my own life because there's been so many experiences I've had over the years where, I've been really enthusiastic about something and been the guy who was just like all excited and enthusiastic and jumping up and down and I'm the right man for the job or whatever it is. And then, you know, you get sort of slapped down by life. And then a few years later, you, you you know, you try to get your enthusiasm back up again and you, you know, you're the most excited guy in the room and you're the right guy for the job and you get slapped down again. And then eventually you come to a place in your life where it's not that you're necessarily bitter or grizzled but you have had, you know, you've been humbled, you've gotten reality checks, and then you're much more sort of candid about your feelings about whatever it is, job application, school application, opportunity, love life, whatever. And then because you're so kind of realistic about it and so down to earth now that you've been humbled mm-hmm. now you get it right now you yeah. get the job now you get the thing now that you know you achieve whatever you you wanted to achieve years earlier i've had that happen so many times in my life so i find that to be such a relatable i've never been before a parole hearing but i just love the <laughs> yet um but i just love the evolution of that character's mindset and more and freeman i mean i guarantee you they shot those things on the same day right oh i mean they got that set they i guarantee they should so they just you know they put a little more gray in his hair you know they put maybe darker circles under his eyes or whatever and you go back in and you shoot you know 10 years later Mm -hmm. and he's he's unbelievable (laughs) in those sequences particularly the last one god damn he's good (laughs) uh this movie big uh you know flop but still nominated for seven oscars
0: yeah, knowing for a bunch of awards, uh, deservingly so. Uh, it eventually made its money back, it looked like.
1: And then some. I was reading that Bob Gunton still gets enormous residual checks from this thing. Ooh. because of it. Yeah, he, he said like 20 years later, he's still getting, he, he's still surprised every time he gets a huge check <laughs> from the Shawshank Redemption because this thing just plays. It just, yeah. it plays. And you know, it's always out there. It's always around. It's always on people's minds. It's always playing. It ended up being one of the highest grossing films of 1994.
0: Well, I, I guarantee this is a big time like a VOD rental movie for, for families sure. during the, the holidays, especially. And you know, I don't want to belabor this point because we've done it over and over again on this podcast, but this is one of those mid-budget movies that we miss so much like a 25 million dollar budget full hollywood production and we we just we don't see that sort of you know 20 to 50 million dollar budget range all that much anymore and it's a goddamn shame
1: yeah i mean i don't i don't mean to throw you know iron man the dark knight rises under the bus 30 years from now i don't think we'll be talking about those movies on uh or you know, Star Wars, The Last Jedi. I don't think we'll be talking about those movies on an AFI Top 100 list. No, but we certainly talk about a lot of these mid-budget movies on these lists because uh, they tend to uh, they tend to age very very well. I mean, we we talk, we talked during our Forrest Gump episode about how what an important year 1994 was, mm-hmm. and how you know Forrest Gump obviously won picture won best picture. On our rewatch, seems like we both um, liked it a lot more than we expected to. We're obviously two of the world's biggest Pulp Fiction fans. I watched it again over <laughs> Halloween weekend. It's a fucking masterpiece, still. Mm-hmm. But it's significant that this movie outranks both of them. Forrest Gump, seventy. well, it outranks Forrest Gump by, excuse me, by four. I guess it's not that much, but it outranks. They, you know, it outranks Pulp Fiction by a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a real crowd pleaser, despite its you know jail centric <laughs> yeah. setting, um, and it's it's true to very human feelings and human themes and hope is a hope is a good thing Matt and people respond to that shit maybe the best of things the best of things indeed <laughs>
1: um all right any final thoughts before we wrap this up not at all it's a great movie I don't know if I put it higher necessarily but I like right where it is it certainly deserves to be on this list and it's one of the most popular movies uh, of the 90s or maybe even of all time for a very good reason it really holds up
0: I mean after watching it again I, I have to feel that maybe it does deserve to be higher but I think it will. Would- We'll get to those feelings uh, later as we watch the rest of the movies on the list. Until then, this has been number 72 on the AFI Top 100 list, uh, Shawshank Redemption. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye.